kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Downloaded another episode of Love That Album, episode number 59 to be precise. Thank you very much for joining us. My name's Morris, and on the other side of this Skype connection is a man who's actually been on the show quite a number of times but hasn't been on in quite a while. To, so I'm very happy to have him back, and I'm talking about my fellow podcaster, my fellow drummer, my fellow ex employee of the same company, Mr. Michael Persh. Welcome, Michael. <laughs> Hello, Morris. How are you going? That's, that's a bit spooky, isn't it? Yes, indeed. <laughs> it is. All these, all these <laughs> things in common. It was meant to be, Michael. It was meant to be. <laughs> Uh, indeed. Uh, lo- lovely to be, back, to be back, mate, talking about some Australian albums. So anyway, uh, welcome to the show and what we have chosen to discuss this time, two albums from the late 80s, one featuring the man who was boss before Bruce Springsteen, Ross <laughs> the Boss Wilson. I, I know a man who's uh, probably very close to your heart, not just for his own work, but for his production work of two albums, or was it three? Of, three, uh, three Skyhooks albums, yeah. Uh, yeah. From, uh, from, from Skyhooks. The first three albums of Skyhook, so uh, he'd hold a very close place to your heart and to the hearts of a lot of people of uh, our vintage. And he's hardly which, produced anything since. I wonder, well, does that, what does that say? Um, it, <laughs> might, it might have said that he it's figured, you know, I've, I've, done, I've done perfection, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to, you know, sort of do anything downhill. I've, you know, three, three good shots, that's it. Go out on a good note. Okay. Uh, but yes, anyway, so he put out his first, well, I don't know, I guess if you don't count the soundtrack to uh, the, that road film called Oz, I think his first Austra- oh, sorry, Australian, his first solo album mm, was mm. in 1989, The Dark Side of the Man, and he'd already been like recording in a, a variety of groups for about you know, 24, 25 years or so, so it's amazing that he, it took him that long to record a solo album. So Absolutely. We're going to be discussing his solo album of 1989, The Dark Side of the Man, and we're also going to be talking about uh, another band that's been very much in the Australian public eye of recent, but not so much because of their own music, but because of the fact that uh, another man who calls himself the boss, uh, Bruce Springsteen, covered one of their songs. We're talking about the Saints and their album All Fool's Day, and it's the opening track on the album All Fool's Day that uh, Bruce Springsteen covered on his most recent album, which uh, we discussed on episode 58 of Love That Album. Please go back and download that. Cross-promote... Well, it's not really cross-promotion, it's promoting my own show, but there you go. So, uh, so yes, anyway, two fine Australian albums, All Fool's Day by The Saints and Dark Side of the Man by Ross Wilson. I'm looking forward to uh, having this discussion with you. So, uh, you know, very quickly, what's what's been on um, in your life in uh, recent times, well, both gig-wise and in, in the bar? This, this week, I'm of equal measure of of being excited and depressed because, of, as most people in Australia this week, uh, were informed that our uh, our Rolling Stones tickets were uh, were null and void until later on in the year. So Indeed. I was uh, was heading there last night, but um, I'm very excited to, to and I, it, it passed me by until during the week. But uh, next weekend in Adelaide, and I dare say in Melbourne somewhere around 
two of the stars from my well, my second favourite movie of all time, 2001, are coming to a special screening next weekend. So yeah, yeah, they win some, you lose some. They're 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 um showing up at the Astor, and actually they uh they came to uh Melbourne and they spoke at the Astor, did a uh question and answer session with um the uh the public at the Astor Cinema, oh, I don't know, maybe sometime in the last 10, 15 years. So they have actually done this before and they're going to the Astor yet again this time. And unfortunately, I cannot do it. And, and it's a big disappointment to both myself and Max, but um, circumstances dictate that uh, we can't come. But uh, hopefully someone will videotape it and put it on the uh, Astor YouTube website. Uh, it'll be very, very exciting. So um, I... I I wish you all the best for that. Please give me a call and let me know how that goes. That, that sounds terrific. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And it, uh, I'm not sure if it is, they're showing it in 70 mil, but um, I actually went and saw it at the Astor many years ago. I just happened to be in Melbourne. Mil. And, no, they, they have and, a 70 mil print. Yeah, and it was, I, I went especially, though, it was just a weeknight that I was randomly in Melbourne and I, I noticed it was on and I jumped on a tram and it was awesome. Fantastic. Mm. We're very lucky. We're very lucky because actually the Astor owns that print, and once every calendar, like the calendars are usually like three months, so we get at least one screening every calendar. So um, I've I've seen it quite a number of times. I'm a big screen, and every time, uh, also Sprach Zarathustra opens up, you know, playing in that gigantic cinema uh, on that you know incredibly sounding sound system that they have in the cinema i reckon just the three times that they play that opening of also sprach i reckon i've got my money's worth alone i mean the rest of the film is almost the icing on the cake well i I warned my wife up today because she doesn't she she knows nothing about the movie at all but but i warmed her up and and uh, watched gravity with her today which i i I enjoyed but it was it was very yeah i I won't go into whether it was a good movie or not but they they stole so much from 2001 well, you you might find out that um, you walk you walk out with Sue from the film, and she's going to say, "What was that about?" Well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm expecting that indeed. Yeah, never mind. No, wish wish her my luck. Uh, but uh, it is it is a wonderful experience for the rest of us. No, absolutely. I, I'm 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 very envious. Go and enjoy, and ask them lots of questions. Yeah, no, look, looking forward to it. Mm. And and who do you have coming up in the bar in Adelaide, Mike? Oh, it just just so happens later on this evening, I've got a uh, an interview planned with the one and only Jeff Downs, who I hope. Well, I guess people in Australia will, will remember him from the Buggles and their their huge hit video "Killed the Radio Star," which I think was about seventy nine. But um, yeah, he's 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 recently back in Yes and his band Asia. Which, which just passed Australia by. In 1982 in the United States, their debut album was the number one album for the entire year, and it, and it sold diddly squat here in Australia. That's <laughs> unbelievable, isn't it? I remember hearing, um, what, was, it, was it them that did that song, Heat of the Moment? That, that was the big hit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, I remember hearing that on Casey Kasem's American Top 40 when 3DB used to uh, play it every Sunday night. And I, th- I think that sort of got a bit of a run here on Top 40 radio back in the day. Yeah, I think there were something of a one-hit wonder. Um, mm, but that, anyway, a, an awesome, a super group indeed with Steve Howe on the guitar and, and Carl Palmer playing drums and um, John Wetton from uh, King Crimson 
you know, that's pretty good. It doesn't get better than that. All right. Okay. So uh, what we'll do at this time is we'll go have a quick break. Actually, so I should say, I'm always forgetting, but uh, I remember just in time, we'll be having uh, halfway through the show, Eric Reanimator's segment, uh, an album I love. And this time around, keeping with the slightly punky theme that we're going, well, I guess, well, Ross Wilson's not really punky, but he was taking his cue from uh, the fact that we're talking about the Saints All Fools Day. So he's covering uh, the album by The Damned called The Black Album. And the thing that that album has in common with the Saints All Fools Day in particular is that it shows a, a band who's not exactly abandoned their punk roots, but has sort of gone and progressed and is you know taking more of a bit of a... Uh, a pop route and you know, um, it, it really Eric has some very interesting things to say about that album so stay tuned for that that'll come about halfway through the show uh, and I actually even have a little bit of feedback someone sent me an email someone actually listened to the damn show and thought you know what he asked for some feedback I'll send him an email so end of the show I'll be reading out a little bit of feedback and that's very very exciting you know it's just, we don't often get unsolicited feedback on this program so it's very exciting I think maybe the last bit of unsolicited feedback might have come from you Michael and look what happened I made you part of the show <laughs> yeah, most most of what I get if if I take out all the expletives, like there's nothing left to read. <laughs> yeah, send some of that feedback my way. It might be interesting. <laughs> all right. Uh, at this stage, we'll go for a quick break, and then uh, Michael and I will be back. And I think we'll talk about Ross Wilson first and his album Dark Side of the Man. You're listening to Love That Album with Michael over in Adelaide and uh, myself here in Melbourne. We'll speak shortly. <laughs> Son, it's time we have a talk. About what, Dad? Well, son, pretty soon you'll want to look at naked girls. Some movies have lots of naked girls and things that make you feel strange. Mm, like Sasha Grey videos? <laughs> oh, you've got to start off slow, son. Save the triple penetration gangbangs for when you get old and miserable. Savor the sight of bare breasts from a bygone era before they were a Google away. Supper time, you two. And remember, no incestuous ruffies or rapey pink films until after dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The Trashy Trio, covering Euro sleaze, Japanese pink films, American ruffies, or any other sordid entertainment that comes their way. The Trashy Trio, a podcast to listen to while alone. With headphones on. Probably in your closet. Under some covers. Sometimes all the pieces fit. Sometimes all the colors fold. When you stroke the face of it, all the images unfold. They Morris here, Michael there. You're listening to episode 59. Love that album. And we're going to start off this episode 
talking about Ross the Boss Wilson. Now, um, uh, in Australia, Ross Wilson's like one of a handful of performers who's been still, you know, creatively going since uh, the 1960s. I mean, yeah, there, there are still, you know, a few of them about. And last year, I think it was Russell Morris came out with a, you know, a real surprise hit with his album Shark Mouth. I'm embarrassed to say I actually haven't listened to it yet. Oh. Do, do, it is brilliant. Uh, that's that's the word that I'm hearing. I'm, I'm really embarrassed about that. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess another obvious person would be Joe Camilleri. You know, he's, he's revered and he's still creatively active. Um, I, I, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but... I saw uh, Joe Camilleri as part of a Rockwiz show that they did at the Queenscliff Music Festival maybe about three years ago. And blow me down, I think he's singing better than ever. They were doing like, I think a tribute to uh, the late Solomon Burke. And there was like a, a, a bit of a medley with, between himself and the Wolfgram sisters. And I can't remember who the, the other people were, but, but Joe Camilleri sang like his life depended on it. And I, I've always like loved him as a singer, but this just blew me away. So, yeah, and I agree, mate. I saw him early this year, and uh, he was fantastic as always. He really is. And he, with, with your drumming mentor behind the drum kit, I must not add. Lucky Luscombe. Yeah, indeed. Well, so actually, a double, he, a double treat. We, he's going to actually come up somewhere in uh, this conversation because uh, Mr. Luscombe uh, appears on uh, a track or two on um, Dark Side of the Man. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Ross Wilson was. Uh, one of those guys to come out of the 60s and, and you know, still uh, active nowadays. So he, he started out with uh, bands like Sons of the Vegetal Mother and and the Pink Finks. I think, was it the Pink Finks that did a version of Louie Louie or something? I mean, every yeah, band and, did one. Yeah, which was a huge hit in Melbourne, I think. And, and he was only a kid, you know, maybe 18. Oh, wow. Yeah. However, I guess as a performer, as opposed to being the aforementioned Skyhooks producer, he's probably most known for two bands in particular, uh, Daddy Cool from the early 70s and Mondo Rock from uh, the 80s. And um, you would have heard the news about uh, Mondo Rock reforming this year. Was it for the was it the 30th anniversary, I think, or, or was it 20th? No, chemistry. Of chemistry. Yeah, it'll be 30, yeah. 30 years. It'll be 30, yeah. And, and it's my, my wife, this is, this is really, really lame. My wife dragged out a bright yellow Mondo Rock wind sheeter that she bought when we saw them. <laughs> And, and sadly, it still fits her. But it, it just and the romantic man that I am, Morris. The the uh, the tour comes to Adelaide on the night of my wedding anniversary or our wedding anniversary. So we're, we're going to see Mondo Rock, isn't that oh, good? Look, oh, Michael, it's just the state <laughs> of the heart. Absolutely. You're waiting there in the shape that you're in. I mean, that's that's really you know just put up a sign saying Ross sings. Oh well, that's on chemistry anyway, isn't it? So it's, that's right. It's a it's a no brainer that they'll that they'll do that one. Oh, and you and Sue will look at each other and oh, it's so sweet. It is indeed oh, nauseating, it isn't it? Ah, oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, we're, we're softies, you and I. And uh, and it's yeah. So it's it's very topical that we uh, we talk about Ross Wilson this week, isn't it? Well, see, how how is, things come around. Well, I I think it's great. I mean. We sort of decided that we we're going to talk on that about this album. I think before it had even, the news had even come out that, or at least you know, in any big sort of way, that they were doing these Reformation gigs, and that Chemistry, the album, is being re-released. I think on Aztec Records. And for those of you outside of Australia who don't know, Aztec is like Australia's version of Rhino Records. They're sort of dedicated to uh, archiving. I guess more a, a lot of the Rhino stuff tends to be more compilations, but Aztec tend to release old albums that mostly, although, you know, not. I mean, Chemistry was a huge hit back in the day, but a lot of these albums are like long neglected 
albums yeah. and maybe even though chemistry was a big hit back in the day i don't know really how much in the last you know 25 years or so whether we when we talk about classic albums whether that one's been um, sort of spoken of in in revered tone i don't recall ever seeing it on cd either I, you know there's compilations about but yep and I'm, I'm amazed that it's taken this long because I grabbed a copy of Primal Park, the first Mondo Rock CD that had been re, uh, re-released from, um, with Aztec probably, well, nearly 10 years ago. A long time ago, anyway, maybe not that long. Yep. But yeah, I'm, so I'm really surprised it's taken this long. Well, but uh, the exciting thing is that uh, Aztec always have really, really high standards with uh, their re-releases, and it's going to sound absolutely beautiful. I'm so looking forward to it. Actually, I think, was it last year or the year before when we covered the Broderick Smith's Big Combo album, and that was mm. uh, an Aztec Records re-release. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and, and, a, and a lovely little tie-up, because Gil Matthews is the uh, the main man of Aztec Records, who Australians will know as the drummer from Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, but he actually uh, was the drummer on State of the Heart. He, he didn't... Didn't, I don't think he made the whole album. It's certainly not Gil who's performing in this lineup. Of, yes, um, it is. He's coming oh, out. On, yeah, he's coming out on tour. Oh, really? So I, I, yeah. I, I thought it was. Um, oh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, JJ was, Hackett. I was I hoping. Was, yeah, JJ yeah. Hackett. Who, wasn't he with Stars at some point? Yes, yes. And I, I, he's one of those guys. That if anyone's out there in podcast land, whatever happened to JJ Hackett in Australia? I have no idea. He's disappeared. Well, I'm going to be posting up. I'm going to be posting up news about this. Uh, podcast on a couple of the Australian uh, music discussion websites so hopefully someone will uh, choose to listen to it and then can send us an email and inform Yeah, us. I would love, love to know what he's up to. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, but it's Ross Wilson that we're sort of focusing on for this uh, episode and I don't know about you, Michael, but I'm sure we went you know, to very similar sorts of parties and like it didn't matter what decade that you were in, if you go to a party and someone decides to put Eagle Rock from Daddy Cool. Everyone gets up to dance, even the wallflowers. seen this but um, I think Tommy Emmanuel I don't know whether it actually actually succeeded in doing this or not but Tommy Emmanuel uh, decided that he was going to try for the Guinness Book World Record in getting the most number of guitarists in the one place gathered to play the same song at the same time and it was going to be Eagle Rock but I don't, I don't know whether he ever that record or whether whether that was ever actually achieved but I remember reading that that was something he was attempting he was going to do it um, somewhere in Melbourne but uh, that, that's a long time ago, so um, my memories shit out at the uh, at the best of time. So, I, I, I also have a friend who's who's only lived in Australia for for a short amount of, of time from Scotland, and, and he asked me the other day what the deal was when they and they they 
I'm thank goodness for the the general public that I'm too old to be doing this, but apparently <laughs> apparently now when they play Eagle Rock, everybody drops their pants. Now, what? from from what I hear, it's it's become and from what I understand, it's a BNS ball sort of thing. It was um, you know the the outback sort of you know crazy shenanigans they get up to. Um, at youth, youth musters and and such like is uh, yeah whenever Eagle Rock comes on all the all the guys drop their pants so there you go. Good lord, that's that's now like Daddy calls equivalent of the Angels. Am I ever going to see your face again? Exactly. Yeah. That's I don't know. Some things are a bit <laughs> sacred. I, I don't think I like the sound of that. But no, uh, I've not said it. So I'm, I'm you know the general public are glad are glad that I didn't that I wasn't around in the area that they were doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I so hopefully the general public have recovered their taste again and they're not doing that. Uh, so uh, anyway, Mondo Rock came along a decade later after, um, uh, actually maybe not even that, but sometime in the late 70s and you know, they released that album that you mentioned, Primal Park, but not with the lineup that eventually got to be really, really big. Um, and, and there were uh, you know, albums like you know, the aforementioned Chemistry, uh, which really put them into the uh, upper echelons. Of uh, mainstream Australian pop, you know, and songs like you know, "State of the Heart." Yeah, it was absolutely all over the radio. Uh, it was interesting, you know, for, for someone like uh, Ross Wilson, who's you know, known as a great songwriter, that he um, allowed someone like Eric McCusker, who was a guitar player for uh, Mondo Rock, to uh, contribute songs to um, uh, uh, to the Mondo Rock canon, as it were. Well, I think they just work so well together. They, they did a, a show here in Adelaide that, um, oh, maybe three or four years ago that Eric, Eric was in Ross's band. And uh, in the afternoon, in a music store in the city, they actually did a Q and A, and I I went along, and they they were really, you know, it was really fascinating to see them together. How much they bounced off each other, and how much you know they generally loved playing music with each other. So you know, they, I think Eric really brought out the best in in Ross. Maybe in a way that Ross Hannaford did in Daddy Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting though because you sort of imagine like in a lot of bands where you know. The uh, songwriting royalties are the bread and butter for the main songwriter, and there's egos and all that sort of thing to be contended with in a band. It's amazing that someone like Ross Wilson, who was already like a huge household name in in Australia and you know in uh, pop music, that you know he would he, he recognised that Eric McCusker was a, a songwriter to be contended with, and rather saying, right, well, you know, I'm not going to fight you off. I'm going to welcome you into the fold because it's good for the band. So um, that show, that shows you know, real nobility and, and maturity on on uh, Ross Wilson's part. And in hindsight, a very clever move indeed. Yes, yes, absolutely. So 
anyway, we get to 1989, and Ross releases his first album in his own name. I mean, as I said, there, there was a soundtrack for a road film in the 1970s called Oz, uh, which I think was like a, a, a bikey version of The Wizard of Oz. I haven't seen it, but that's the impression I'm getting, which went in his name. But this is like really the first sort of general pop album release, Dark Side of the Man, in his own name. And uh, at first you sort of think from the title of the album, oh yes, just a, a play on words. But in a way, I guess this is, if not quite a concept album, but by and large, most of the songs on this album, despite the rather bouncy melodies, are, are actually quite dark, you know, so he's <laughs> actually gone for a theme here. I think I had this discussion with yourself and with Jeff Jenkins through email. Oh, he sends his regards. Uh, he, uh, ah. Jeff, um, I, I, okay. I'd really thought that uh, this album, my memory, once again, not serving me correct, I thought that this album it was quite big, but, um, you know, you informed me otherwise. Well, the, I, I, I remember it got a lot, you know, the, the couple of tunes got a lot of airplay, Bed of Nails and, and the title track got a lot of airplay, but, yes. yeah, I don't, you know, I certainly don't recall it being a big seller at all. It, it's just sort of faded away. Hmm. But... But I don't know, you know, my feeling when I go back to it now, too, is I'm still not sure if I like the album or not. Okay. <laughs> because it's so, it's all over the place. There's, oh. you know, it, it touches everything, and I'm not sure. That's, I think that's why I like it, but it's also why I don't like it. That's, that's actually an interesting point you make. Last month, John, Jeff, and I discussed Bruce's album, Bruce Springsteen's latest album, High Hopes, and whether the criticism of it sounding fragmented uh, and, you know, it was not a real album, it was a valid one. Basically, they sort of came to the conclusion that it was too fragmented for them to uh, appreciate as a you know, classic Springsteen album, but they were just great moments rather than it working as a whole album. And I guess, you know, there would be people who might have pointed the same finger at this album because like, you've got, it seems like, three different sessions, three different bands uh, mm. ostensibly playing on this. So there was a set of sessions recorded in New York City uh, produced by... An extraordinary drummer, guitar player, all-round great musician, Ricky Fatah, who I think lived in Australia for, for quite a number of years. He and, did, he did. That's yeah, right, yeah. He produced, I think, you know, albums for the likes of uh, Rene Geyer and... Yep. Um, yeah, Marsha Hines and all those sort of... Yeah, he was around a lot. Yeah, he, he certainly was. Well, did he have anything to do with like, the early NXS stuff? Um, don't recall, but most, most importantly... He was in the movie The Ruttles. Well, I was going to mention, if, um, if you don't know anything else, he was the George Harrison surrogate in, uh, in The Ruttles, yes. But um, So anyway, so he produced the, the sessions that re were recorded at the record plant in New York City, and there were some pop sessions recorded in Melbourne and Sydney, and there was a set of jazz sessions recorded in Melbourne using the cream of uh, local jazz session players uh, that were under the production of uh, The Count. Paul Grabowski. Uh, well, well, okay, so let's discuss some of these songs. So, I mean, look, the question may about, you know, its, it's fragmented nature may be different here because, you know, all of these songs may well have been written for this project, unlike, you know, Bruce Springsteen's, which was sort of like leftovers and all over the place. But the question remains as to whether the jazz songs have a place among the pop tunes on this album. First of all, let me say that I love those songs. You've got uh, the song Go Bongo Go Wild. Go bongo Go wild Let your head down oh, For a while 
better go bongo. I better go wild. Which actually, I think he uh, revived later on in another solo album that he released independently. Um, there's a song, When I Get My Hands On You, and uh, a, a song called Tough Guy. But play, th these songs are placed as a trio on the middle of the record. I'm wondering whether Ross was too scared to sort of intermingle them with the, you know, sort of more so conventional uh, pop songs, as as it were, you know, to see will it all work. If, oh, no, look, I want to do these songs, but I better stick them here so it's a separate session and I'll put the pop songs on either side. And see, I, you know, I, I compare this to... And, and I, you know, Ross Wilson does it all so well as the, the comparisons I think are, are Joe Jackson because Joe Jackson could do, you know, your pop song and your, your you know, your hard edge pop song so well, you know, a la the early stuff. But his jazz stuff was magnificent. But it, he took the leap, but didn't take the leap within the context of an album. And I'm, you know, maybe in hindsight, and if, maybe that's why the, but I, yeah. I, I digress, but like I guess the, the the songs that got airplay were the rock songs. But I, I wonder. So I don't know if people didn't buy the album because they they wouldn't have heard those other tunes because they didn't get any airplay. But I, you know, I think in hindsight, I think the the album would have made made three great EPs to actually to have to, to split them up. I I think I would have preferred that, but who am I to to judge? But it, yeah, it's I don't really understand how. Look, I, I don't know. I mean, I appreciate, and I, I guess I tried to make this point while we were talking about the Bruce Springsteen album, High Hopes, in the last show. But um, I, whilst I do appreciate the need often for a thematic album, one that sort of has uh, some level of con a consistent sound or some level of a thematic approach, sometimes I just really appreciate a good collection of songs. And the fact that, you know, you've got a set of songs that have, um, you know, the cream of American players, and you're getting uh, guys like uh, uh, you know Daryl Johnson and and Richard T, you know, playing on some sessions, and then you're, you're going to uh, to Melbourne. You've got uh, you know the cream of Melbourne players, you know Paul Grabowski and Doug DeVries, you know, both incredible musicians, and uh, Tony Floyd, who's um, uh, you know you'd be familiar with his drum work in uh, Things of Stone and Wood, as well as his jazz sessions. Uh, and Ray Pereira. I mean, there's some great musicians, and to me, the songs. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that the jazz songs take me out of the mood of the album like uh, maybe a lesser performer could have done. Just because for me, these are all great songs, and I just think it's him showing. Well, I can do this. I can do that. And yeah, maybe it would have been great to have a whole pop album or a whole jazz album. But he's already shown over the years his uh, rock and roll chops, and you know, he's done his things you know, with. Uh, you know, the, the prog rock early on, and the simple rock and roll, and the uh, the 1980s pop, and here he was was saying, look, I like, I don't really want to sort of do a whole jazz album because that's not something I feel I can do. But you know what? I, I want to show a little bit of what I could do. And yeah, he could have released it as an EP, but then it might have only been the jazz people who bought it. So he said, right, here's my new pop album. Let me introduce you to some other things that I can do. Mm -hmm. And and I guess um, you may have hit the nail on the head too that the you know the three sort of distinct sessions that that this album was made, you know maybe it was you know after being in Mondo Rock and, and Daddy Cool for so long, you know maybe they were just a journey that that Ross, you know a musical journey that that Ross was lucky enough to to take on to, to find his feet and and just put them together and say you know this is this is all the things I can do and he's he's also gone on since then and done, you know. 
Country in Wilson is one of, the, I think, one of the best Australian country records yep. ever made by a rock artist. So, you know, he, there's nothing he can't do. Yeah, well, there was that, you had that discussion with him and uh, asked him about country in Wilson. And you say, well, look, you know, it's not like it's the first time you've done country. You know, And he, he said, was it come back again, in, back from the Daddy Cool days? Uh, you know, it was, was a bit of a country tune. And um, I'm trying to think, what, there are a couple of other songs that you, that, uh, you mentioned. Uh, so you know he's he's dabbled his hands in all sorts of things, and I I really applaud the diversity. And yeah, I mean you could argue that you know songs like Go Bongo Go Wild maybe don't have place on a pop album, but I, I see them as far from a novelty. I think it's just him showing his great craftsmanship as a songwriter, and I guess more to the point that all these great musicians were saying, yeah, we'll throw a hat into the ring. We'd love to work with Ross Wilson because really in 1989. He, you know, it really, he was already an Australian uh, songwriting and performing legend. I hate to use that word, but, but he was someone who was greatly admired by the uh, music listening public. Mm, absolutely, but as you say, also the, you know, the musicians in Australia, and that, and that's, um, you know, that's testament to that with, with all the, the great jazz guys that are on this album that you that you reeled off before. But, and and it was, was important then too. But, you know, those guys. I think out of sight of jazz circles in Australia weren't well known, mm. and and you know I, I back in those days I was a big and I still am a big Vince Jones fan. Yes. So you know I knew a lot of these guys from him and people like that. But I think the you know the rock music public it it, it the the profile of those guys sort of took off in you know in in the general scheme of things after after this sort of time. So I think it, you know this is one record that I think helped them get. Get known to the public and, and you know started appearing on every second album we, we bought from for a while well you, you mentioned Vince Jones and he actually has a uh, an appearance on um, uh, the the final of the three jazz songs on this album it's called tough guy tough Holy shit! You know what a what a great tune that is. And I don't know about you, it it sounds to me like um, actually as as uh, the uh, previous song when I get my hands on you both sound like they could have easily been covered by uh, Frank Sinatra. Mm. Oh, and that's and and it's interesting because I, I I went and saw we we have a cabaret. I think you do in Melbourne too. We have a cabaret festival here every year. Yes. And and a few years ago Ross did a cabaret show here. Oh, is there anything the man can't do? And. And with um, basically piano, bass, and drum, and he he did a lot of you know his songs that he would normally do, in and including some Skyhooks tunes in a jazz style, and he just he just nailed it. He was fantastic. So well, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, these songs, you know, specifically. Uh, so tough guy. Um, this song, you know, it, it really really swings with uh, you know. The aforementioned Tony Floyd on drums and Lloyd Swanton on the, in uh, the rhythm section. And Vince Jones puts down some absolutely cracking trumpet solo on this. Uh, the melody in the performance really, it, it sounds like it belongs in a, in a film noir, you know, and you've got this weasel who's uh, hitting, on, hitting on some damn. Yeah, and I agree. That is one of the songs I really love on the album. But I think, I think my problem is that 
I like I love those songs so much. I wanted to hear more. You know, three or four tunes in that style. I think, well, where's the rest of them? Yeah, it's been, it's been a then, long time. Maybe you, maybe he ought to record a, a whole cabaret album or a whole jazz album sometime. Yeah, yeah. maybe because, now's the time. Well, yeah, and and that's you know that was once once you sort of made the jump from from one tune to the next on this album, the 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 different sessions were were a bit short, and and I think that's my problem with it. It's not that I didn't like any of it. But there wasn't enough. They sort of was just enough to give you a taste, and it was it was over. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the opening song on the album, which is actually the title track of the album. You wanna sneak around and take a look at the other side of me? Maybe you will not be pleased with everything you see. You're gonna make me show my hand Tell me why I wanna see The dark side of the man I got a dark side, baby Oh yeah The dark side of the man I got the real bad side Yeah, yeah, you better stay on the good side Right now I'm... Uh, dark side of the man you know, he sings in it, you know, I've got a real bad side, you'd better stay on the good side. Which, I don't know, when I read that as lyrics, it doesn't sound terribly, like, terribly much. But within the context of uh, of this song, I mean, uh, musically, I think it could have worked in the context of, uh, of a Mondo rock tune. It sounds, you know, very 80s, you know, of its time, and, you know, of its time, but I think it holds up today really, really well. It has this threatening sound. Uh, it also, I was also going to say, it serves... As uh, I don't know, uh, the other song that I thought about while listening to this again, you know, for the show, was Paul Kelly's song "Sweet Guy." I reckon both songs are telling the same story. I mean, maybe not intendedly, and maybe I'm reading too much in this, but they complement each other. "Sweet Guy" is sung from the perspective of a woman who's, you know, um, being threatened by you know the man that she loves, and you know, "Dark Side of the Man" is the same guy telling telling his woman. You know, be careful, you better stay on my good side because it's, I could explode at any time, I could freak out. Uh, you know, the thing is, it's not you're not supposed to sympathise with this guy, you think, wow, what a prick you are. But, um, but it's still an interesting story, well told nevertheless, and it has, uh, it's still very poppy, very jaunty, and yet very threatening all at once. And I guess this is, you know, the, the way the, the album opens to me is, is a natural progression from Bondo Rock. These songs feel like, you know, this is just following on the next... As, as you said, could have easily been the next batch of Mondo rock songs. You know? And I, I find it interesting that you know the, all the encounters that I've had with Ross and you know, I've seen him perform so many times and had the, the pleasure of speaking to him a number of times. He is one of the nicest, sweetest guys and I don't, you know, I guess everyone has a dark side but I've, it must be there somewhere or he's, he's writing in the third person maybe, I don't know. He's certainly gone and explored that very well in that song. That, that's one of the songs from uh, uh, the New York Sessions. As is, um, uh, well, the next song on the album. Uh, when I'm not sort of going to go song by song, but just sort of you know highlighting a few ones that I like, and uh, you know feel free to butt in with any of the ones that are your favourites as well. But uh, bed of nails.
which he wrote with um, it, it, these uh, two guys, Eris O'Brien and John Pulicino, who seemed to be like his uh, songwriting partners for this album. It looks like you know, Ross was very, very collaborative. But uh, you know, this song features um, uh, Australian expat. I don't know, although he may have since come back to Australia, it was uh, Karen Tolhurst, ex-Dingoes, uh, yes. pl- playing on this. Um, and this was the, you know, the big hit single from the album, which is probably why I sort of had forgotten that, you know, or I didn't realise that the album hadn't been like a massive explosion, because you know, it seemed like Bed of Nails was forever being played on, on uh, mainstream radio back in the day. Yeah, you're right, it was, and it got a lot of airplay, and, and we spoke about this before. This, this was, in Australia anyway, the heyday of MTV. And and this, you know, this song got flogged to death on MTV. Mm. So um, I, I, maybe I'd be interesting to actually go and look. I think the single did, you know, did quite well, but maybe the album didn't uh, keep up to the expectation of the single. But um, and we spoke about this before too that the um, and I, I guess but you know, and I'm not really, you know, I, I spoke to Ross about this at the time when I, when I first had a chat to him quite a few years ago that. Um, you know, as as we've mentioned, this this album was all done in different places with different session musicians. Mm. But he, the actual live work he did in Australia was was done with a heap of guys from Adelaide, oh, right. um, who were all in, and I don't understand why and where he found them. But they're all very talented musicians. But at the, at the time, they were best known in Adelaide from a Led Zeppelin cover band, oh. <laughs> of which of which still plays in and fills houses in Adelaide. They're called the Zep Boys. Um, oh, the, the Zep Boys, they were playing yeah. here. It seemed like they were playing every weekend here in Melbourne. They were, they were huge. Yeah, well, and still still. And they're, they're, they're Adelaide boys, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and uh, Vince Contarino lives, the, the vocalist lives uh, up in my neck of the woods, and I, uh, I quite often see him running in and out of the gym. Um, but, they're, yeah, they're, I think um, the drummer, Zach Wild, is, is now a Melbourneite. But the, the guitarist, Rob Pippen, is, I, I think, one of the the Adelaide success stories as a as a musician he, he he's a promoter as well but you mentioned the likes of Russell Morris before what what Rob does these days and has done very successfully over many years and I, I think it started with with what he did with Ross was he'll bring people like um, uh, like Russell Morris to Adelaide and put a band together mm. and and actually back him up so and he's done this with a lot of people from overseas as well but the last one that, that springs to mind is is Glenn Hughes the the vocalist from Deep Purple, but um, oh, wow. so he's a, you know he's a very very good musical director and you know a very clever man and and he doesn't like me actually mentioning that he's, one of his claims to fame was the musical director of the TV show Here's Humphrey, but I won't mention. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I digress. So I, 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 think, you know, I think that's I think that's a high watermark to be honest with you. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. But uh, you know that's so uh, and and Ross uh, and all well, the other strange thing about those guys, but at the time. Um, the Party Boys were were, were huge in Australia, weren't they? And um, they, they were, but they, they had a rotating lineup, didn't they? Or was it yeah. just rotating lineup of singers? Well, mostly singers. But Paul Christie from Mondo Rock was the main man. Mm. But but at the time that um, this this sort of live band got together with Ross Wilson, and I, I still don't understand how it happened, but the Zeb Boys took over the name nationally of the Party Boys. With with no no one in the band that had previously had anything to do with it, yeah. they released a single. They did a cover of um, the old Mon- um, Manfred Mann tune, "Do I Diddy." Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, which which you know did reasonably well around the you know it was nothing fantastic, but did reasonably well around the countryside. But um, 
yeah, I, I just thought it was really, and, and at the time, Ross said, you know, what great musicians they were, but it just seemed the strangest thing to, to you know, find these relatively unknown guys from Adelaide and, and take them out on the road. But, um, and they, you know, we spoke about MTV a minute ago, and they, back in those days, MTV, I, I guess similar to what um, they did, uh, did in the States, they put a band on in, in, their, in their studio, TV studio, and, and play their entire new album mm. live. And uh, and it may well be on YouTube that uh, the performance that Ross did were with all these guys from Adelaide. So um, yeah, I'm still totally perplexed as to how that came about. It's very mm-hmm. strange. I, I will come back. I know that um, we we had an interesting digression. I do, but I still wanted to say a couple of things about Better Nails. I guess you know, thematically, once again, another very dark song. And I find, in a way, it's such a bouncy tune, but it's really hiding a very sort of depressing. Uh, subject matter and that you know it one's enthusiasm in in one's youth can sort of you know deteriorate or be pummeled into shape and uh you find that you know you, you give way to to a life of blandness from uh, your original ideals in your in your early years you know lay down in a bed of roses wake up lying on a bed of nails it's the oldest of tales and i i'm just wondering you know where, where was ross at this time in his life, I wonder, you know, had he found that, you know, he wasn't happy with something in his life or was he just really able to put himself in someone else's shoes? But it's, uh, you know, there we were so like, you know, happily singing along to this song that we heard on Top 40 Radio and it's really masking what's at heart a very, you know, depressing lyric. True. But, but, but have you, have you noticed that the best songs that have the darkest lyrics are often the the bounciest, poppiest tunes and I love that. But, but it is interesting that Ross Wilson and, and, before or since his his, although I guess living in the land of Oz was a fairly serious political song, but but you know a lot of the mono rock stuff and daddy cool stuff is very, you know, lighthearted. It's not very heavy subject matter, is it? No, no, not at all, not at all. I mean, really, daddy cool was the party band, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and and you know, going through the eighties, I guess. Uh, you know, Mondo Rock were, you know, along with, you know, who else, you know, uh, Australian Crawl and uh, maybe Split Ends to a lesser degree because they sort of maybe had already folded by the time this album came out. Oh, the Uncanny X-Men Yeah, well, <laughs> well sure. no, no mention of Brian Mannix on this show, please. I don't, uh, just maybe talk about another couple of songs. I mean, uh, so I've been hogging all the songs. Is there anything that, you know, what, what stands out for you, Michael? Well, Go Bongo, Go Wild is, is one that really stands out for me because I think mainly of the, the comparison I, I made before with Joe Jackson. And, and, you know, I, and I know you're a Joe Jackson fan, you know, of his music anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and that's what I love about Ross Wilson, that he can do, you know, he can rock it up as good as anybody. But this showed that he can, you know, he can do this sort of stuff, which is, for me, was totally left field. And I, you know, I, um, and to the extent where, and you mentioned before that he he made an entire album, it may may have been two or three albums after this, but uh, yeah, along those themes. So you know, I think it's, I you know, musical diversity of of what Ross can do is you know this is a classic example of that. So has he been put into the Australian Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or whatever we have, the Aria Hall of Fame? Has he been inducted? I think I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Daddy Cooler in there. I I don't. 
I'm not a big fan of watching awards shows, so I, no. I don't pay a lot of attention, to be honest. But I'm sure you'd have to be. Would have. I, to be. I, I can't remember who, whether it was Joe. I think it might have been Joe Camilleri who Jeff Jenkins went on a personal uh, mission to sort of petition absolutely anyone who he could and said he would not rest. He would not sort of end his days comfortably until it was either Joe Camilleri or Ross Wilson who had um, gotten into the Aria Halls, Aria Hall of Fame. And um, it looked like you're not a big fan of award ceremonies, and really the Hall of Fame belongs to the uh, music listening public, those who buy the records and those who buy the concert tickets. But if you want to get some sort of uh, official commendation, then, yeah, certainly those two guys absolutely deserve it. Oh, no, both of them are no-brainers. Though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, sorry, I'm... As long as we're mentioning Joe Camilleri, there's um, the song on the album called uh, You Got a Mirror. You got a mirror and the mirror is me. But you look so hard, baby, you can't see. What can I do with a girl who won't believe? We've both lived through the good and the bad. Which Joe Camilleri has no direct involvement in, but uh, you mentioned uh, my my uh, mentor before, uh, although he doesn't know it, uh, uh, Mr. Lucky Luscombe. Uh, the song You Got a Mirror has a huge Black Sorrows feel about it. Uh, it's sort of like about the time of uh, Dear Children or, or uh, Harley and Rose. It has that sort of uh, Americana feel. It's got, you know, Lucky Luscombe on drums and uh, the Bull Sisters on backup vocals and Wayne Goodwin on fiddle, who was, I think, there in the early days of uh, the Black Sorrows. So, you know, no surprise that that song actually has a very strong Black Sorrows feel. Uh, and, uh, I mean, look, you know, I'm always in love with musical stylists. I mean, there are a lot of great musicians, but there are very few people in the rock world that I can think of where you hear what they do, and even if you haven't heard the song before, you say, all oh, right, that's, that's so-and-so. And, but you hear Lucky Luscombe's drumming and you know straight away that's him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's just one of those songs before I'd ever looked up the credits on the album. Oh, that sounds like Peter Luscombe. Oh, by, go- by golly it is. It's interesting. I was, I was out at a, at a party last night in lieu of going to see the Rolling Stones <laughs> <laughs> having, a, having a chat about um, Charlie Watts. And, and he, per- he performed in Perth. Yes. He, and I was he sat in with a jazz band. That would have been fantastic. And, and I, was, I was saying that oh, you know, Charlie Watts is one of these guys I could happily sit there for an hour just listen to him keep time, and <laughs> and, and and seriously, Peter Luscombe is another one of those guys. He is he has a lovely groove. Just to hear him play time is a beautiful thing, and and a lot of drummers don't have that. And it's 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 that it's that thing. You know, simplicity is you know to have to be able to do the simple things magnificently. Well, we've spoken about this before. You know that my passion is when uh, musicians serve the song and Lucky Luscombe is a lover of songs. He he serves the song probably like the, the other drummer who I'd compare him to would be uh, Pete Thomas from Elvis Costello and the Attractions, uh, now the Imposters. Really the two of them are the greatest breaking it down, making it simple and both men are capable of far more complexities than what they're actually doing but they think no 
I love the song and I'm going to do what's right for the song. I'm not out to show off. Uh, both are amazing drummers, both really amazing musicians. But and it, as you say, it's amazing what stamp um, and, the you know, um, Mr. Luscombe's contribution to this album is another great example of the stamp he could put out and you instantly know it's him. Well, the last song I want to speak about specifically, um, and this is my actually, I think, my favourite song on the album. Uh, and apart from maybe the jazz tunes, it's really the most untypical song of the album. It's the last one called Slow Fade. Because the love we made didn't make the grade and it slipped away in a slow fade. And the love we lost didn't count the cost so when the coin was tossed and the bridge was crossed, I as you walked away in a slow fade yes I watched you as you walked away in a slow CD version had another track which might have also been played by uh, Black Sorrows Affiliates but on the vinyl version which is the one I've got uh, this was the last song and really I think it's the song that deserves to be the last one it's um, you know another song uh, about you know a relationship gone bad but what I find about this interesting is really uh, the musical touch you mentioned Joe Jackson a couple of times before and the lineup of this song includes um, a woman who was his uh, backup singer and keyboard player for quite a few albums, uh, a lady called Joy Askew. Uh, and the main uh, keyboard player on this tune was uh, Richard T, who uh, had played for many, many years with Paul Simon. You look at that uh, concert in Central Park, that's him, and he's also playing in the One Trick Pony film and album, and just an incredibly wonderful and tasteful player. Absolutely love him. He's, he's playing on this. It's um, you know just to have such great musicians. And this song, you know, you know, because lyrically it's about uh, a relationship that's gone bad, and you know the couple sort of didn't know it, and they weren't they weren't just breaking up quickly. They the, the relationship deteriorates into a slow fade. You know, once again that c- cinematic feel, and the song does fade out slowly, and it's just so gorgeous. This uh, th- this recurring uh, keyboard motif that goes over and over while it slowly fades. It's just, to me, it's achingly beautiful. Uh, just, yeah, I, I think my favorite song on the album, it's, uh, out of an album of really many, many fine songs, that's, that's for me. It's just such a gorgeous way to end off. Absolutely. And it's, 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 you know, I think, uh, an art that is lost these days in, in the world of iTunes that, you know, mm-hmm. the album opener, the album ending tune are very important. Right. This right. is the classic one, but does does it make you wonder if you know the likes of Ross Wilson had stayed for an extended period in New York and played with these guys and got known, you know the, I guess he was a, you know age wise maybe not in the the right place to be doing that, but it, it really does go to show with the, 
you know, those those sorts of people that, you know, the, the guys we have in Australia that we sort of take for granted are, are up there with anybody. I, mean, I wonder whether the thinking behind this album was that it was going to be intended for uh, an American audience. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And, and it also dawned on me then, with, and I'm, I'm not sure of the timeline, but I, I wonder this if the, the tunes were, were sort of bubbling around because... Because uh, you know um, Ross's longtime partner Pat Wilson, I'm, I'm not sure sort of when they parted ways. Whether along with that, you know, some of these lyrics were sort of tied up with with that period in his life. It, it, it could well be. Although I, I know that she actually um, co-wrote uh, one or two of the songs. Actually, she well she co-wrote the uh, uh, two of the jazz numbers. When I get my hands on you and Tough Guy. So, um, but that one might... would hope he still sent her the uh, the royalty check. <laughs> It's good to end that way. Before we finish off our discussion of uh, this album, I'm going to tell about my one little bugbear. And I don't think this album is the most guilty of it, but it was part of a production technique used in the 80s. And I have to say that this album isn't as bad as some, but, and you know, you as a fellow drummer, I'd be interested to see your take on this. But, you know, like in the early 80s, everyone was using those bloody awful Lin drums, you know, the dum, 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 and then it sort of went away from that, and they still, you know, I guess drummers hadn't quite gotten rid of technology, so they were sort of, you know, working with uh, the, you know, the sensors that they'd put under the uh, under the snare drum, and they'd use the snare drum as a trigger, I mean, you know, bloody Phil Collins is probably the most guilty of that, with that horrible sort of clipping sound that um, that they'd get, so you'd, you'd find that, you know, they'd hit the snare drum, and just the the brief bit of sustain that you might otherwise get from uh, the crash of the snare drum it's clipped off and there's a lot of that on this album and except for the jazz sessions and it just really annoys the the bejesus out of me i don't know does that bother you or am i just i haven't noticed it so much of this but it does annoy the hell out of me but but i, I do confess that at the time i i think i did own something that, <laughs> that went Doom! <laughs> Shame on you, Michael. I oh, know. I, I don't know. I probably should have kept it to be some sort of antique by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's playing a Lin drum now. Uh, all right. So, any final thoughts before we um, close off this no, section? It's, uh, you know, it was very interesting to go back and look at this album. I have not played this album for many, many years. So, yeah, it was quite an eye opener to, and I have a a, a, a greater appreciation of it from. From going back and listening to it, so you know it was a, a good excuse to open that to open that little pocket of time again. Nice. Well, Gil Matthews, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm putting in my official request for you to re-release this album out on uh, Aztec Records, and it would be great to know whether there's any outtakes, any B-sides, any songs that just never made the final cut, because uh, you know, by and large, I think the standard of writing for this album is very strong and. I'd you know, like to hope that you know, any other tracks that didn't quite make the cut would still have something to recommend them. So um, anyway, that's something I can wish for, something we can hope for. Maybe send an email out to Gil Matthews or maybe he's listening to this. Who knows? All right, we're going to um, have a break now and go to uh, our good friend and collaborator, Mr. Eric Reanimator. Um, actually, before we go into his album I Love segment, I should make mention that uh, if you've been checking the Love That Album, I nearly forgot the name of my own show. Uh, if you've been checking the Love That Album website or paying attention to the Love That Album Facebook page, you'd notice that we've sort of got a new initiative going on where Eric is actually sort of putting out a series of Love That Album episodes in his own right. Thus far, only one, but there's another one coming up in April. And basically the idea behind that is he's going to talk for, you know, anything from 15 minutes to half an hour about his favourite compilation albums. Now, that's something that we don't normally cover on 
love that album proper, but he proposed the idea to me. Uh, I'd asked him, I said, you know, did you want to do a few shows in your own right? And he said, yeah, I'd like to do something in a compilation theme. And I thought that was an absolutely brilliant idea. So um, keep an eye on the uh, Love That Album Facebook page or the lovethatalbum.blogspot.com page uh, to see what Eric puts out. He's, uh, you know, Eric is someone who's been long valued associated with the show and his uh, discussions are always worthy of your attention. So uh, anyway, we'll go to his album I love segment for this show where he's going to talk about the Dams album, the Black album. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk about the Saints album, All Fool's Day. You're listening to Love That Album with Michael and Morris. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for... An album I love with Eric Reanimator. A la dee dee, a one, two, three, Eric the Reanimator. today to talk about another album that I love. This time around, the fourth album by the UK band The Damned, talk about the Black Album. The reason I picked the Black Album is that, just as with the Saints All Fools Day, the Black Album showcases a punk band growing. Sure, there are a couple of punky tunes on here, but there's a lot more atmospheric pop, a little bit of garage rock, a little bit more refined musicianship, and more experienced songwriting all of which equaled some of the classic tunes from the band. Let's take a listen. It's gonna be a life of star for me Electric black and of fire and the
1980 as a double record, the Black Album is, in a lot of ways, the uh, the next logical step for punk musicians. If we accept the fact that punk starts off as young people trying to make a noise, trying to learn how to create a sound, and then evolves from there, this is the next logical step. We talk a lot on Love That Album about punk singers that have gone country in their later days. The damn singer, uh, Dave Vanian, actually did do kind of a rockabilly album later on. But in the case of the Black Album, you have a much more refined sound, but still accessible, still fun, still poppy, still punky. At the same time, you have a little bit more maturity, you have a little bit more wit, you have a little bit more subtlety, and you have some ambition. Now, this album also does include two songs that are uh, horror movie-oriented, you have the great Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the abominable Dr. Fives referencing 13th Floor Vendetta, which is one of my favorite songs by The Damned. Also included on the album is the 17-minute opus Curtain Call, which is actually a great song. On the original issue of the album, it took up the whole fourth side of the double LP. The Damned are often considered an also-ran second-tier UK punk band, But the truth is, in so many ways, they were the number three band. You had the Pistols, and then the Clash, and then the Damned. All three bands toured together. All three bands came out of the same pub rock background. Of the three bands, of course, the Damned are the only ones that are are around today in some way, shape, or form. Yes, some of the original members are no longer participating, but many of them are. They've put out some solid to good albums in the last decade or so. I've seen them live a couple of times. They always put on a great show. They also did put out some interesting albums in the 80s. The Black Album is an essential part of the Damned's catalog. And there's a reason that several of these songs appear on the Best of the Damned compilation. If you are looking to get into the Damned and you want to start with something that's more poppy and accessible and work your way back to the earlier, rougher stuff, which I don't want to dissuade anybody from because Damned, 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 their first record is essential, as is Machine Gun Etiquette their third record. But the Black Album might be the perfect gateway for people who aren't ready for what those earlier garagey, punky records hold. So I've waffled on long enough. I'm going to leave you with some curtain call and we'll catch you on the flip side. A reckless gambling place with time enough to borrow Time enough to measure Tomorrow 
thanks very much, Eric, for another great album I love segment. And uh, he'll be back next month, uh, both in his own right, doing his Love That Album compilation series special and whatever his next album I love choice is for uh, episode 60 of Love That Album. Thanks very much, Eric. Now, back to uh, episode 59 and Michael on the other end of the Skype connection from me. And we're now going to talk about an album from 1986, The Saints, All Fool's Day. Indeed. So where did you first hear The Saints? I'm interested to hear well, I guess like everyone else, I mean, I you know I knew of I'm stranded and know your product, but I didn't hear them back in the day. I mean, I I don't remember when was the first time I heard uh, heard those songs, but um, I, I think it's probably like sometime in the 1990s that I probably became aware of those songs, and you know that was like already 20 years after the fact. But uh, I mean, they they weren't. They weren't three XY staples or triple M staples to the best of my knowledge. It was wasn't until I guess you know maybe 1990 that I started listening to Triple R. So maybe it was somewhere about there that I first sort of caught hold of it. But, uh, when, when do you first remember hearing the Saints? It's interesting that you know nowadays they're held in such high esteem as you know Australia's punk pioneers, but um, at the time they really didn't get much attention at all. I, I, I remember hearing the tune "I'm Stranded" when it first came out. I think it was on Countdown. And I love. Oh, really? It. Was it on Countdown? Yeah, I'm sure. How about that? Um, and I love that buzz saw guitar stuff. Love the Ramones. Love the Pistols. Loved all that stuff. I, I bought that debut album, and then totally forgot about them until <laughs> until this album. Right. And and had really not much idea what they'd done. So it was it was only All Fools Day that got me going back and finding the the Saints back catalogue, which blew my mind how much they'd changed. And, the, you know, the change from I'm Stranded to this album is unbelievable, isn't oh, it? Oh, it is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, well, technically speaking, apart from Chris Bailey and Ivor Hay, it's not the same band. Um, no. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a couple of minutes. Now, as you know, we mentioned earlier on, on uh, Bruce's latest album, High Hopes, he uh, does a cover of uh, the opening song on this album, Just Like Firewood, and that's W O. U-L-D, as opposed to W-O-O-D, but I'm sure there's supposed to be a verbal pun in there. The saints are often saint uh, sainted. Gosh, I can't get Mr. Tongue and Mr. Lips together. <laughs> they're, they're often cited as one of the originators of that you know 70s punk sound, more in common, I guess, with the British than the American side, but um, you know the three big punk pioneers, one from each continent. You had you know, uh, the Ramones, uh, you know, the, the Pistols, and the Saints, but the, you know, the the Saints preceded the Pistols, so I'm sure that uh, they would have been quite aware of the Saints because the Saints recorded their second album, Eternally Yours, in England. Now, Eternally Yours, if you read through the liner notes of that album, I mean, so already Eternally Yours, it still has that punk sound of I'm Stranded, and yet it's already experimenting. It's certainly, some songs are a little bit more poppy sounding. They use a horn section. Now, you can't imagine the Sex Pistols ever sort of, you know, if they'd lasted longer, ever bringing a horn section onto uh, any of any of their records. So About um, as much as them u- using a Lynn drum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
they, they were they really were doing some very exper- experimental things uh, from their second album onwards. So yeah, they they decided you know they went over to England to record this album eternally yours. And unfortunately, and this is really interesting reading in the liner notes of uh, the EMI re-release. Basically, it seemed like the Saints they were never very comfortable with the punk label because you know, I guess you know the labeling them that in that way meant that. Uh, there were certain expectations of what their behaviour was going to be, and EMI were sort of saying to them, right, well, all these other punk guys, they're putting their hair into mohawks, and they're spitting in public, and they're doing all this sort of stuff, and uh, we want you to do the same, you know, really, that's that's the big gravy train at the moment, and Saints said, no, we, we're not doing that, we just want to make music, and this is, you know, we like that buzzsaw guitar, and we want to make this type of music, and we want to experiment with it, we're not punks in that sense, we're just making music that we like and it's music that some of the punk fans happen to like but it's you know we're not punks in that sense and and certainly i guess if given that line the progression after the initial uh, three albums with the original lineup i guess is no surprise because uh chris bailey and ed cooper certainly had different uh different bags of tricks in their arsenal they went to some very different places you know, coming back to the Saints themselves, know your product, as we've already gone and said, which was on the one hand, you know, musically different to what you'd expect, you know, with that with that uh, great almost, you know, Atlantic R&B sort of soul sound with their uh, with the horn section, but yet I guess it's got a bit of a, a punk take because you know this song is a, a genuinely cynical take on the need to sell things via commercials and big companies' perception of you know the public's gullibility and. and and the irony is that I, EMI wanted to make big on this sort of material. I mean, <laughs> I, I wonder if they were actually listening to the lyrics of the song. You know, it sort of got the got the irony that they were trying to make big and try to sell songs that was basically biting the hand that feeds them. So they didn't care one little bit as long as the cash register. <laughs> and and it was you know I, when I went back and listened to Eternally Yours, you know, and the the stuff with Ed Cooper, I loved it, and I still do. I still go. You know, I don't go back to the I'm Stranded album so much as I go, you know, Eternally Yours is now one of my favourite albums. And, mm. You know, and I love Ed Cooper. He, I think he makes just the most magnificent music, as, as does Chris Bailey still, but Ed Cooper just has something special, something unique about him. Well, it seemed like during the, during the, uh, during the 90s, it, it seemed like Ed Cooper woke up one morning and said, oh, I've got a dozen songs in my head, I better record them. Yeah, I mean, how many albums did he release in the 90s? It must have been like 20 or 30 albums. That's just mm-hmm. insane, like two or three albums a year. It was nuts. Yeah. And some of those were multi-album sets. Um, this is a really, really prolific guy. It started when I was cleaning dishes And the phone rang in the hall I was trying to win against my wishes Ugly memories of the wall And one 
So, okay, so you know, he was basically you know one of the two creative forces, I guess, in um, uh, in the Saints, you know, along with Chris Bailey, and um, you know, albums he released albums like uh, Honey Steals Gold and Black Ticket Day, which you know had here in Melbourne really high promotion on Triple R in the early '90s, and he also you know, put together bands like The Ain'ts and The Laughing Clowns. Uh, and Chris Bailey, I don't think was anywhere near quite as prolific, but he released a number of solo albums, and you know, I think the two most well-known ones were uh, Cas- uh, Casablanca, and uh, one that I also bought it, uh, back in the day that was um, uh, a really, really wonderful, um, uh, I-, I guess more of an acoustic album, a very stripped-back affair called Savage Entertainment. I guess something was made of the fact that you know, Ed Cooper, I guess, wanted to go down a more experimental line i guess you know that's what he was played more on on the triple r i don't know maybe experimental is the wrong word but less in the top 40 type vein and i think chris bailey to uh, to a degree uh, as well sort of discuss when we talk about uh, this album by the saints that we're talking all fool's day was i guess it, it sounds like he was trying to make some big break to get into the uh, triple m uh, set it really has that very big commercial sound to it Oh, and it is, I guess, from, you know, I think it is really the, the precursor to, to what Chris Bailey went on and did with those solo albums. And, but again, as, you know, the, the comparison with with, um, with Bruce Springsteen, with um, Just Like Firewood, the way I prefer to listen to Chris Bailey, Ed Cooper, and in fact, uh, Bruce, is as stripped down as possible because mm. I love the songs. They, all three of them, you know, that's the way I prefer to hear them. Ed's done a lot of things here in Adelaide, just him and a guitar, and it's the most fantastic stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, but like you say, this this album is very commercial. And but but when you and and Chris um, Chris Bailey, when you you know when you hear him interviewed, is is your total anti rock star. So I, I don't know if he would have you know that would have been his intention. Maybe the record company's intention. Yeah, but well, this, it was a mushroom album. I, I'm wondering whether uh, you know Michael Gudinski got in his back and said, look, you know, we're, we're happy to put something out by, but. But for God's sake, you know, try and make it sell a few hundred thousand copies or something like that. Once again, I can't remember. Did this album actually sort of do commercially well? It did. It got a lot, well, it got a lot of airplay and brought Chris Bailey back into the... I remember, you know, really brought Chris Bailey back into the public eye. And I think, as I said, bought, you know, gave him the... People knew him enough to for his solo career to sort of to move on in Australia. Although, you know, the guys spent so much time in Europe, they really didn't spend much time here in Australia at all. Um, and, and indeed, Chris Bailey hasn't lived in Australia for many, many years. So, uh, but, this, but this album did, as far as I recall, and another comparison to Ross Wilson, did very well on MTV in the United States. Just mm. like Firewood apparently got, um, you know, got quite a lot of play. And I, I wonder if... I'd be really intrigued as to where Bruce heard 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 the song, and uh, you know, it's if he heard it way back then, it's taken him a long time to get around to recording. There's a little bit of a digression. I can't remember where I read it, and I certainly haven't been able to find anything on um, on the internet to substantiate it. But I could have sworn that I read somewhere that Bruce Springsteen declared back in the day that Paul Kelly and the Coloured Girls album Gossip was his favourite album of that year. 
or amongst his favorite albums of that year. So that's that's pretty interesting. He's sort of like, you know following his music from all over the place. He's not sort of keeping insular. So if if that's true, then you know more power to you, Bruce. And this this album, I'm, I'm trying to work out, you know, production wise or um, composition wise, it sort of brings mind um, albums like uh, Sixteen Lovers Lane by the Go Betweens or anything you know early Hoodoo Gurus. It sort of has that jangly guitar feel. And you know maybe a little bit of the uh, a little bit of the punk spirit, but more of the melodic pop edge going for it. Mm, um, absolutely agree. That's right. One other person who I should make mention who's on this lineup of the album is one fellow called Richard Bergman, who um, had a, an association with two other well-loved bands. One of these other bands is a, a band that we actually discussed before. It was only unfortunately for one album. He was in the Weddings Parties Anything lineup that recorded The Big Don't Argue. Uh, which I think would have come maybe a couple of years after All Fool's Day. But most importantly, Richard Bergman was and is in the reformed lineup of the Sunny Boys. So, um, yeah. yeah so I, I think you're in town in my part of the world this week, I think. Are you going? I'm not because it's like $70 a ticket. <laughs> oh, oh, said the man who was quite happy to spend, what was it on the Rolling Stones? All right. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I got you there. Having said that, I'm not going either. I know, but, but I would love to see them. I really would. But um, dear, dear promoters out there, I'm happy to cover the show if you put me in through the door. Um, okay, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the production of the album. And I've already gone and said it reminded me a little bit of the go-betweens and, and the Hoodoo Gurus. And yet I'm, I have mixed feelings about the album in terms of its production because it sounds to me like it was they sat behind the desk for the most part, one setting fit all. There was They didn't sort of consider the dynamics of every song. Now, someone can come along and shoot me in the foot, but this is my subjective opinion. Now, they got a fellow called Hugh Jones, who had worked as uh, either an engineer or a producer for acts like Adamant, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Damned, the aforementioned Damned, uh, Simple Minds, uh, Stan Ridgway and even Australia's Died Pretty. And you know, it might have suited some of that material and maybe that was the sound that uh, the Saints were going for. And I think on some songs it works and on some songs it really doesn't. Now, Paul Kelly's Gossip, the album we uh, I mentioned only a couple of minutes ago, came out the same year as that. And it was also maybe going for that post-punk pop sound, but the production shows off the diversity of the material in, in a large way that I don't think All Fool's Day actually does. This is not a dig at the material or at the band, but to demonstrate where the production works versus where it doesn't work, let's take a couple of contrasting examples. I should also clarify that there's the odd arrangement or instrumentation, augmentations that just don't sit right with me, but... I don't know, it may in the end have just once again come down to the production being made unsympathetically. So we've already gone and mentioned the album opener, Just Like Firewood, so let's talk a little bit about that. One night in a hotel room I'd cast like steel I drank the wine they had left on my table I knew the morning was to fall I smoked my last pack of foreign cigarettes I'd stay only but I was dark as a bandit's cold It's frozen right to the bone And just like firewood I burn up Just like firewood Just like firewood I burn up 500 miles Now, you know, 
really Hugh Jones obviously had his ear on the top 40 hit and the song and the arrangement and production and sorry, this is on the positive side really does deliver on all fronts uh, you know it's an acoustic bodied song with some great shimmering electric guitar in the same sort of way that the Hoodoo Gurus used it uh, and there's some you know, lovely touches of uh, string and horn section so you know that was once again keeping with the, the Saints ethos of augmenting the band with you know tasteful touches uh, and really the strings come in originally you know unobtrusively on the second verse and you don't even notice it until you know it's originally sort of brought up in the mix uh, and the horns come in, in the middle eight and once again very tastefully arranged and they don't overwhelm which is you know, really good they know their place and they just they just add some flavor in the way like they they do uh, on um, many years before know your product and I, I guess the song that this reminds me of uh, is, you know, we mentioned Hoodoo Gurus before, is uh, What's My Scene? This sort of really has a, a, a big feel of that. I don't know, did you get that feel? Or? No, but I can see where you're coming from. I, yeah, um, and I do totally agree. It's it's the the arrangement doesn't detract from the song, but it, it really takes what I think is a fantastic song, just a three-chord song. The, the lyrics are great, but it just takes it somewhere else. And I... Um, yeah, and, but I, I, and I understand what you're saying about the album in exactly the opposite way as we spoke about Ross Wilson's album. That was the production was so, you know, to suit the song. This is totally the opposite. The production is there, and that's it. But then, you know, in in my mind, when I think back to this album, there's a it does give it a coherency to it, which, you know, for good or bad, that that's how it fits into my mind. Whereas Dark Side of the Man doesn't so I'm um, no, well then, the, then there's the in between as I mentioned you know, before gossip and I, I can't remember it was Alan Thorne or someone who who recorded that album or maybe he was the guy who recorded the early Dots albums but really the, the material there is diverse and I think it's produced accordingly it, it you don't get two songs that sound drastically different but neither too blandly the same either and, and it just that's an album that so completely works for me on every front and and I think there's so many great songs on All Fool's Day that maybe just in some cases suffer a little bit not not all this i'm not sort of hanging hanging it on the whole album i I, i'm probably making it sound worse than i actually feel about it because overall i really like this album but i just think that's more from a composition and performance perspective and well let me give you an example just to show a, a song that i think really really suffers badly and that's the song called celtic ballad every day i am going somewhere Asking someone to show me the way Everywhere I look I see people Empty vessels that had lost their way Crowded streets with a reek of madness Grey-coloured sadness Rain don't wash away Drunken memories lie in the gutter With brown paper bags and the junk from the night Faded greens dressed in frocks of velvet With painted faces in short today once again, which, is, which is one of my favourite songs on the album. All right, well, let's. I tell you what, you give me why why it's one of your favourite songs on the album and I'll tell you why I think it doesn't actually work for me anyway. Uh, I, well, again, stripped back and, uh, and I, you know, I've, I do hear what you're saying but the production is a bit, you know, maybe is not as what it should be but it's you know a great strip back song and i i guess i i've heard um chris bailey talk about um 
you know, his background and, and some of these things that this song is about. And I, I just found that really fascinating. And it, it's just one of those songs uh, as an album track that really stuck with me. But, but I'm, yeah, I'm interested to hear what, uh, what your take is as well. Well, look, let me stress that my problem is not with it as a song. I think it's a lovely melody and it's got, you know, I don't want to sound like a pretentious wanker, but really it's got an achingly sad lyric about, you know, people who have dull and grey lives and, you know, folks who are, uh, who, who through settling for, you know, next best had their dreams smashed, you know, uh, and people who have to live without basic shelter. So, you know, it, it's, it is a beautiful song. But Chris Bailey is the master of that, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But once again, it's not Chris Bailey's fault that the song doesn't actually work. At least, well, sorry, once again, just it's a personal thing. And probably like 99 out of 100 people will probably say, nah, shut your face. What do you know? What are you talking about? And I'm fully prepared to acquiesce to that. But just to say that what doesn't work for me, in a way, is the arrangement. I think that this song should have been played on acoustic instruments. If they, I, I know, if they wanted that slightly melancholy feel, drums, bass, electric guitar, and penny whistle, I don't think so. Nope. Chris Bailey wrote this song, but I don't think he thought to arrange it beyond using the uh, the instrumentation that he had around him. Now we mentioned Elvis Costello uh, before. Now he put out his. Um, uh, the first album I think that he made uh, without the attractions was uh, an album called Spike. And there's a song in it called Tramp the Dirt Down. Now, most of the al- album is a rock album using you know, the best of the locally available uh, session musicians. Uh, but he has this one song called Tramp the Dirt Down, which actually I think that song got him banned from the BBC because he went and swore. It was basically about, uh, I hate you, Margaret Thatcher. When you die, I'm going to stomp on your grave, you fucking cow. It, it's a folksy sort of song, and he plays it with folky sort of instruments. He doesn't use the rest of the album, uh, the, the rock musicians that he uses to play on this one. And Chris Bailey should have said, right, we're all, I'm either going to get different musicians or I'm going to use the same band, but listen, guys, get out some more, you know, get out a bazooki, get out a mandolin. Let's just do something a little bit different for this. But, you know, he thought, no, oh, well, it's Celtic. Okay, I'll play a penny whistle. I mean, it's, it's just a little bit cliched. And I, I just personally think that the arrangement should have been more fitting the melody and for crying out loud he called it celtic ballad so he's trying to say right i'm i'm gonna ram the point home to you he should have called it something else but if he wanted to call it celtic ballad he should have played it like a celtic ballad but he was playing it with rock instruments and a penny whistle and and just that that for me doesn't work and once again hugh jones for crimes against production humanity um really that's that's just (laughs) terrible really you've got this excess of reverb that you know someone should have slapped people at the back of their heads during the 80s so you don't need that much reverb you know you, you get the drums you get either hey so playing the snare drum boom on a song called celtic ballad what was he thinking what were they doing where's, where's where's the lean drum when you need it <laughs> really i mean look for all intents and purposes that song could have been played on a lean <laughs> drum and it would have been just as tasteless yeah maybe and maybe it's part of that that it was a you know a throwback to the time and and you know i i'm i would wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, mr bailey taking the piss but I, but I do, I do agree mate and and again that and, and you know bruce bruce springsteen aficionados will will cut me down in flames but the the only the only real um thing that i i, I struggled with at the concert when he was here earlier in the year was when the whole band was up on stage, it was just too much. The, the, the song just faded into the background of these 10 musicians going nuts. And uh, again, well, you know, and, and, and that's, and that's, you know, similar to 
this album, I would love um, to hear this album stripped down to just Chris Bailey and acoustic guitar, and I think it would be awesome. Now, I wonder, you know, because um, over the uh, last 10 years or so, they've been, like, from Mushroom's uh, side label, Liberation, they've been releasing a whole lot of legacy artists from their roster doing their old material acoustically. And I yes, wonder, and I has, love those albums. Has, has, has uh, Chris Bailey done any anything in that line? I'm not sure. I, I should go looking. I'm, I'm really not sure. I would. It would be great. It'd be a yeah, good I, opportunity I really to re- reevaluate some of this material because it yeah, would work. Yeah. In, in and I'm a big fan of all those. I've, I think I've got just about every one of them because I really do love them. Wow. So I'll just mention a couple of other songs that I really like because once again I don't want it to make it sound like. I'm coming down so heavy. And some of the production actually does work on some of the tunes. And one of those examples is um, the song Big Hits on the Underground. I love once again the R&B big horn sound, uh, but you know I, I wonder whether this was you know, a tongue-in-cheek song about Bailey himself wanting to gain more commercial favour. Uh, you know something that Ed Cooper really didn't want to seek, and that's why you know they've gone and part of the ways it would seem. Uh, there's a huge energy and uh, that horn section riff that sounds like it could have come off some classic Muscle Shoals session. It's 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 you know not lo-fi and dirty like you know, know your product, but it doesn't sound too polished either. That's a, a really, really great tune to me. Um, you know, what, what's a, what are some of the standouts for you, Michael? T- Temple of the Lord is one I really like. Again, nice, And, and the title track, I, I really love the title track. I think it's as strong as just like firewood. It's and, and to me, it's it's Chris Bailey to a T. And I, I, I and I don't know if this lady's still podcasting. One of the, the the very early podcasters that that really got me interested in doing this was a a lady from Marseille in France, and her name was Annie. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, I don't remember her surname. Um, and What's her the podcast, name of her show? the show was called Melting Pod, and she. She was a huge fan of the of the saints and the angels and okay. Rose Tattoo, and so in in her in her her thick as French accent would <laughs> would interview um, Chris Bailey and Ed Cooper for 
an hour and a half, and it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating, and I loved every second of it. And and to hear Chris Bailey speak to to uh, you know a, a fan about the tunes, and I've never heard him do. He doesn't do mainstream interviews, and I, I I've always remembered how much I, I hearing Chris Bailey talk about the tunes and 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 just his life in general and and his take on the music industry it really changed my attitude to his music totally because he he is a very interesting fellow and a very funny fellow indeed so yep okay so uh, probably last couple of tunes i want to make mention of and i'll be interested to see your take on this because of uh, chris bailey's inflection in the singing uh there's uh, the song called blues on my mind that you could know it is to me it's interesting for a couple of reasons it's an acoustic guitar based song with a feel like for me it would have slotted in on rolling stones album let it bleed or sticky fingers quite nicely and uh, i think on this song and as on another song called see you in paradise which is funnily enough the other ballad on the album uh bailey even sounds like mick jagger a bit am i imagining that or, or did you get that too no i totally agree because i know i had this total flashback on friday night um i was lucky enough to go and see um bobby keys who was oh, how was that the rolling stone sax player and his band here in adelaide and they played sweet virginia from um i think it's x from exile yeah 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 and i was the thing gee this sounds like a chris bailey could do this so well so i totally agree and that just came to me is they and they were fantastic really good um, um if they if they do the sideshows when the stones come back uh, really go and see them there um he's a, a not just a fantastic musician but a very funny guy mm. he, he every song he uh he, he spoke about the song and and told stories and in you know in in this thick texan accent and he was so funny and he, you know a couple of things he made mention of you know last time he was in in australia or, or one of the most notorious times he was in australia i think him and keith richards got uh, got arrested for uh, cavorting with naked women on a, on a flight from adelaide to perth and he he mentioned shocking the, the short time that they were in perth this time all they did was play dominoes so I thought, you know, <laughs> Oh that, oh, that was just brilliant. So, that's, what yeah, the, ab- that's what the old rock stars do, no longer throwing TVs <laughs> out of windows or cavorting with naked women. They're drinking tea and playing dominoes. Yeah. Who'd have th- who'd have thunk <laughs> Keith Richards playing dominoes? But, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so, um, you know, Chris Bailey does remind me of of those acoustic stone songs and i re- and i'm i hope that's I, I mean that as the ultimate compliment because I, I think not too many people pull that off you know mm, that mm. style off especially not you know when they're and maybe people that aren't from the u.s do it even better than people that are yeah exactly all right any final thoughts on the album any final words no but again mate this was an album i haven't listened to i haven't gone back to and i i was so excited when i saw bruce had um 
had recorded just like firewood and and actually you know what what's your opinion of his version of it? do you like it? i i do like it but i mean I, if you look on youtube to any of the live performances uh of uh, bruce performing the song at the australian concerts and you can tell yeah, people from Australia are all saying, oh, this is nowhere near as good as the Saints version. And um, people from overseas saying, no, no, we've heard that Australian thing. You know, Bruce is uh, is the best and all that. So, and really, the truth be known, Bruce's version is just, you know, it's completely faithful to the... Um, I don't think it's not the, much different at all. No, no. It's, no it's, it's no different at all. So to say that one version is better than the other, if you're going to say one version is better, then you'd you know, probably hint on the Saints because, well, they, they wrote the damn song and, you know, Bruce is just paying tribute to it. So but I think to, to say that um, Bruce's version is, is better is just... It's ridiculous because it's the same. But having said that, you know, I think it's been a wonderful thing that he covered it, you know, not just... not for least reasons is that it's probably putting some cash in Chris Bailey's bank account but more more to the fact that you know um, Bruce is saying hey not just and not just on that Saint song but as he proved while traveling around the country with all those Australian uh, cover versions that he did he shows that he's a real fan of of uh, not just well Australian rock and roll but he's a fan of he's a fan of music and he's saying rest of the world I know you're probably watching this from someone's uh, iPhone recording on YouTube I really, really dig this song. You should dig it too. And, you know, really, you know, respect to him for, for doing that. He never sang any of these songs, like, just as a as a jokey sort of thing. He took these songs really, really seriously. And I don't know if you've seen on YouTube, I think it was in uh, Brisbane, where he did the Bee Gees Staying Alive. And he wasn't taking the piss out of it. He did it, uh, he did it his way. You know, he didn't do it like a disco song. But he made it a Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band song. So full credit to him for doing that. Uh, it was oh, absolutely, absolutely and, amazing. And he, and he did Friday on my mind. He yes. Did, um, a great version of uh, what's the in excess tune he did. Uh, Don't uh, Change. Yes, was brilliant. And um, Highway well, to Hell, obviously. Uh, Highway to Hell brought the house down. He's, gonna, he's, he's probably going to include that in his uh, overseas sets. He might not do any of the others, but I imagine Highway to Hell is going to find a, an ongoing part of his uh, overseas set. Mm-hmm. It, but it, I, it, found it, I found it really interesting. That, you know, when he started to play just like Firewood, uh, the show I went to, I'm, you know, rah, 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 how fantastic. And I looked around and I sort of got the impression that no one else knew the song. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it is... You know, to the mainstream, a forgotten song, a forgotten yeah. Australian classic. Maybe. It's, it's far from obscure, but yeah, maybe it's uh, not been repeated to death on yeah. uh, on Triple M like uh, a lot of other things have been. Yeah, but uh, but as yeah, as you said, all uh, all power to him for uh, for playing. You know. Those those Australian tunes that maybe people uh, around the world have uh, not familiar with. Indeed. All right. Okay. Well, um, I'm, we're going to take one more break, and then I'm going to uh, end off the show, talking a little bit about what we're going to do next time. But uh, you have some preparation to make before you speak to uh, Mr. Buggle. I'll go 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 and uh, do a bit gargling a, a little bit and get my uh, my long distance dialing finger ready. <laughs> well done. Don't forget to ask him that Ben Folds question. I will. I will indeed. And. Uh, there's, there's actually there's lots of great covers of Video Kill the Radio Star, so we could just talk. He probably doesn't want to talk about that all night, but he could. <laughs> you never know. He might uh, might surprise you. Yeah, you well, never know. Well, thanks very much once again for uh, being part of uh, Love That I Mean, it's been way too long, and um, I, I, I uh, hope that uh, we'll be doing something like this again probably within the next few months, you know, very soon. If, if for no other reason, we, we have another shoot in the shit session probably to, uh, to do. 
midway through. Uh, the always good fun, and it's if if nothing else, you make me look back into my back catalogue of albums that I've forgotten about, and I uh, I thank you for that, mate. All power to me then. All right, thanks very much, Michael. We'll be back. Well, I'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, after these breaks promoting other podcasts and I'll talk about what will be on the show next time. All right, you're listening to Love That Album with Michael and Morris. Hey, all you podcast listeners, here's an update. See here. We know some of that bad brown acid has been going around, but we've got an alternative. See here. Have these headphones here. Throw them on. See here. Movies for your mind. See here. See here podcast. We discuss music related films once a month. Find us on iTunes or at see here. That's S E E H E A R dot podbean dot com. Just relax, listen, and float downstream. See here. This is the ghost of the King of Comics, Jack Kirby. When I'm not haunting Stan Lee, I'm listening to my favorite comic book podcast, Double Page Spread. Each week, Wendy Freeman talks to creators like Cullen Bunn, Mark Wade, Evan Dorkin, and more. She is one cool dame who knows a lot about comics. So when I'm at my drawn board in heaven cranking out fourth world pages, I'm listening to Double Page Spread. Available on iTunes, Libsyn, and the Stitcher Network. And we're back from break. Thanks very much for having listened to episode 59 of Love That Album. Uh, Before we go, I've actually got some written feedback. As Basil Fawlty once said, a satisfied customer ought to have him stuffed. No, but really, quite seriously, I'm I'm thrilled that someone's gone and sent me a a letter, unsolicited even. Um, So uh, the letter is from a fellow called Richard Poinder. And he writes, Morris, as you can see, I'm a late starter to LTA, so forgive my late discussion on old episodes. Just finished listening to the Matthew Sweet podcast. I never realized just how much of an evil stalker he was on the album. I remember that I flogged Girlfriend to death at the time it came out, as it was one of the best catchy pops albums I'd heard since Woodface. It also had that great guitar sound that makes you want to listen to it loud like Oasis. When Altered Beast came out, I was first of all disappointed as it did not have the same pop sound and was on first listening very dark, but the more I heard it, the more it grew. When Sick of Myself came out, I thought, great, back to the fantastic pop, but the rest of 100% fun, and for that matter, most of his albums since, I've just not enjoyed to the point of that the only other thing of his I have is the Son of Altered Beast EP, which is a bit of a mixed bag, but nonetheless is a good listen. I did get to see him in Adelaide in about 1994, playing in a small venue called The Synagogue, which was also a place which only fitted a few 100, and you really felt close to the band. Alas, my memory was that it did not live up to my expectations, in that the thrashy electric guitars overpowered the great harmonies. The Ice Cream Hands interview was really interesting. Boy, he can talk a lot. What made it so listenable, and for the others I've heard, is listening to people talk passionately 
passionately, passionately about things of interest. I like the ice cream hands, but only in small doses. Great melodies and harmonies, but there is all there is only so much of it that I can take. Same reason I own no Beach Boys and only Abbey Road of the Beatles. <gasps> Shame, Richard. Mad Turks from Istanbul were the first band I saw in Adelaide in 1983. I'm not sure why I remember that, as the only reason I went was that they were playing in the pub nearest to where I was staying. Just lucky, I guess. Keep up these excellent podcasts, Morris. A look at the ones I'm still to listen to makes me think that you have seen my music collection. I won't suggest any albums as I enjoy the surprise factor. Cheers and thanks, Richard Poinder. Well, really, thank you so much, Richard, for taking the time to write. Really much appreciated. I'm glad that you're enjoying the show. And hopefully um, you'll enjoy whatever else uh, you choose to download from the LTA back catalogue and what we have coming up over um, the next few months and hopefully over the next few years. I'd really hope to keep going with this podcast as long as uh, I'm enjoying it and as long as you people out there are enjoying it. Uh, so I think on that note, we'll um, uh, say farewell. Oh, actually, I should probably tell you what we're going to be covering next month. So next month will be a little bit different. Rather than me getting uh, another fellow music lover to discuss uh, a couple of albums with me, I've gone to the source. I'm going to get a couple of musicians to actually talk about their music with me. So have a couple of interviews lined up. The first one is going to be with a fellow called Van Walker, who actually is um, an excellent artist in his own right. But I'll be speaking to him in relation to his uh, lead singer and songwriting duties for a Melbourne band called the Livingston Daisies. They put out a great album last year called Don't Know What Happiness Is. And I'll also be speaking to a lady called Sherry Rich, who once again is also known in her own right, but her side project is a group uh, called The Grapes. She paired up with the lead singer and songwriter from uh, a band called Even. Uh, the fellow's name is Ashley Naylor. Um, and if you're a, a, an Australian music lover or rock music lover, I should say, then Ash Naylor's name is probably no stranger to you. Even uh, widely loved. But uh, The Grapes, well, maybe they're not as well known to you, but they should be well known. Uh, they've made two albums, two fine albums, and the most recent one came out just last year, and it was an absolute treat. So I look forward to uh, speaking with both of them, and I look forward to uh, you joining me again for Love That Album, episode 60. Uh, please spread the word that the podcast exists. Uh, you can download it from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com, or you can uh, look for Love That Album in the iTunes store. Please, if you want to follow Richard's example and send me some feedback, you can send it to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au or join the Facebook group, uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Love That Album. Please start any music-related discussion that you wish. Um, you can be talking about the podcast. You can be talking about something that you're digging um, something that you don't like about the music world, anything at all. Uh, just be part of the community uh, and we'll all have a fine, jolly old time. So until uh, late April when uh, Love That Album episode 60 comes out, uh, please be nice to each other, listen to some great music, watch some great films, read some great books and just be wonderful to each other. And we'll speak to you in a month's time. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.